Good morning, everybody. Great to see everybody. Hey, let's hear it for New City Kids. Thank you so much. I mean, we, we always say that uh, our, you know, we all live in different neighborhoods, but our church actually has a neighborhood, and our neighborhood is uh, right over there on the west side, and so many the kids today are, are from that west side, and um, that partnership that we have uh, in Christ with them is, is a very valuable one for us, and so, okay, the life of Paul, we ready to dive into this? We're looking at uh, Paul's life just because Paul's life matters. Um, just like your life matters, uh, my life matters, um, and, and so much of our, or at least my learning of Paul had little to do with his life and everything to do with his, his, his letters and his teaching and his doctrine and things like that. Um, but we're looking at his life and uh, this is a weird text. Uh, last week, if you were here, Paul was in Corinth, and so we'll kind of be in Corinth, but he leaves Corinth, as we're going to see today, for Ephesus, and then there's a lot of miscellaneous stuff, um, but I think we're going to make some sense of some important things today. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to start where we were last week, Acts 18. The first few verses there, and then I'm going to skip around a little bit. If you have a Bible like mine, it could be page 900. (laughs) After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and he worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned to in the synagogue, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Now skip down to verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left his brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. So Priscilla and Aquila accompany him, with him. And they went to Syria. There he had his hair cut off. Anybody know why Paul had his hair cut off? He got a haircut. Yeah, he he grew it long. Um, Part of the Nazarite vow is no cutting of the hair. What else? No drinking of wine. What else? No touching dead things. And oftentimes it included sexual purity. So why is Paul doing a Nazarite vow? I thought he was set free from all those laws in the Old Testament. Corinth is sin city. And he's right in the heart of it. And I think Paul's like, if I'm going to live in this place, I'm going to take a vow so that I can keep my distinctiveness. Anyway, little PS there. Okay, um, So then they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, and he himself again went where he always goes, to the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews, and when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined, but he left. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. 
And then he set sail from Ephesus. And then down to verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man, thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And he spoke with great passion and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew of the baptism of John. (laughs) So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now let's get to chapter 19. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior, arrived at Ephesus, so he returns, like he said. There he found some disciples. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. And Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. This is what the Christian... Christian movement was called the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and he went, and this went on for two years. Now listen to this, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the whole province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, and God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. This is God's word. You can be seated. So yeah, there's a lot of activity going on here. Uh, Paul continues his long stay in Corinth, and then he leaves. Uh, like, like we saw, too, he even gets a haircut. Uh, and then finally, he gets to the province of Asia. In fact, let's uh, just look at a PowerPoint, because when Paul set off on this... Um, second missionary journey, if you could get the one of the map, um, that was his goal. He wanted so badly to get to Asia, that Roman province, but God kept closing the door, closing the door, and then he had that vision from that man from Macedonia, um, we need help, so then Paul uh, set sail for Macedonia, you can see it up there in the top left corner, then he makes his way down to Achaia, um, where Athens and Corinth are. And then uh, after staying in Corinth for 18 months, he then makes his way finally to the province of Asia. And of course, when Paul gets to a province like that, what's he going to look for? The most important city. And then when he gets to the most important city, he's going to go find a synagogue. He stays there, gives him a teaser, says, I'll be back. Uh, and then he returns, uh, who knows how long thereafter. And that's kind of um, what we just read. So when Paul goes in the synagogue, what is he proclaiming? Christ. The good news about Jesus. That the long-awaited Messiah has finally come. Now, for the Jew, the, the coming Messiah, I don't think it means to them what, what it means to us. For us, Christ means 
that when I die, I get to leave this world for another world called heaven. But for the Jew, the coming of Christ means the dawning of this whole new age in this world. It's the age of God's kingdom, when God's realm invades our realm, when, when God's uh, space uh, comes and enters into our space, um, when heaven is unleashed upon earth. And when that happens, creation is repaired, it's, it's restored, um, it, it comes back to life. Um, if you remember John the Baptist's question to Jesus, he says, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? And what was Jesus' answer? Yeah, John, don't you see what's happening? The lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised. In other words, the new age is, is, is breaking in. The kingdom of heaven is here. Now, one of the things that kind of just troubled me as I learned my Bible growing up is I, I, I saw this discrepancy between Jesus and Paul. I don't know if any of you have ever thought that. Like their message seemed a little bit different. Their, their ministry seemed so different. And, and what was Jesus' message? The kingdom of God. Look at Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. What's the kingdom? Again, it's the good news of this whole new reality, of God's reality breaking into our reality, of, of, of heaven being unleashed upon earth, of, of, of God's space invading our space. And, and what's the effect of that? Well, look at the next verse. And he healed every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him uh, all who were ill with various diseases, the demon-possessed, the paralyzed, and Jesus healed them. Come on, everybody, if you can. Well, ah, you can't see outside and see how beautiful it is right now. Uh, but you drove here today, and I guarantee you, um, you're like, wow, spring is coming right? I mean, think about what spring is. Happens every year. Everything that is dead comes back to life. And what's right in the heart of spring? It's, it's, it's Easter. It, it's resurrection. And I love how, how Jesus spoke about his resurrection. He says, I'm going to be like this seed that's going to be planted in the ground. And when I'm planted in the ground and, 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 and like that seed, I, I die, I'm actually going to come forth and I'm going to bear great fruit. It's the fruit of the kingdom of heaven. And Paul takes this a little bit further and says, this isn't just limited to Jesus, but that he's just the first fruits of a great harvest that is to come. Listen, spring is here. That's the announcement of the kingdom. That's what Jesus came to unleash. And summer is coming. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because this is Jesus' message. And it's Paul's message. Look at uh, Acts 19, verse 8. 
Paul, first of all, like Jesus, going to the synagogue. Paul's message, just like Jesus, what's he proclaiming? The kingdom of God. Not only that, but look at verse one. Like Jesus, he's making disciples. In fact, verse seven tells us there were about 12. (laughs) What do you mean, about 12? Because this is how the kingdom gets pushed in our lives and and how it's unleashed out of our lives. It's it's through becoming a disciple. And then if you think that uh, the kingdom is is limited to just a message we proclaim, uh, but look at verses 11 and 12, uh, as with Jesus, look at those verses. Stunning. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs, chiefs, and uh, aprons that had touched him were taken back to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. It's amazing. And these miracles, they're, they're not just like magic tricks. These are These are windows to let us get glimpses into the world that, that, that is to come. It, it, we're not there yet. Uh, spring has burst forth, but, but winter is still kind of hanging on, and we live in this time between winter and summer. And Christians oftentimes don't know what time it is. Some still think it's all out full-blown winter, and somehow we just have to endure until Christ comes again when he'll turn our world into summer. And then other Christians go to the other extreme and and think that we live in the summer right now, and that if there's any sign of winter, any sickness, any suffering, any kind of disease, that if we just have enough faith that we can pray summer into that. And then they sometimes even think when they read verses like 11 and 12 that this should be the norm for every Christian every day. Listen, this isn't even the norm for Paul. As we've seen, Paul's life is filled with suffering. It's filled with pain. And it's not because he lacks faith, but just the opposite. It's because of his faith. But we need to know that that we don't live in the winter and it's not summer, but the spring is here and the way that the kingdom of heaven is gonna get unleashed in us and through us, it's not gonna be so much through the sensational, it's gonna be unleashed the way it was unleashed through Jesus. Through the mundane act of faithful, sacrificial love. Loving our world serving our neighbors, blessing our enemies to the point of death. Imagine if we live that way. Because what I want to look at today is not so much the places that Paul goes to, but I want to look at the relationships that Paul forms because relationships are massively important to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, if you want to know how a tiny movement like Christianity could hit Rome and its uh, Achilles heel and, and, and subvert it, subvert it. Do you remember that word subvert? Good. Let me show it to you again. It's to undermine the power and the authority of an established system or institution, in this case, an empire. 
And look at those words underneath. To unsettle, to overthrow, to overturn, to topple, to pose, to weaken. If you want to know how this movement did that to Rome, it's really how they did relationship is a big part of it. And so I don't want you to think of Paul as this lone ranger. He always has a Barnabas or a Silas with him. Currently, his team consists of uh, Silas, Luke, and his disciple, Timothy. And now he's also adding uh, two more to his team, Priscilla and Aquila. Um, In fact, as we read, he meets them in Corinth. uh, and, And these two also become intimate friends of Paul's and partners in the gospel. And and first of all, I want us to look at who Priscilla and Aquila are. I mean, the text says they're Jews. It also says that they they, uh, meet Paul when Paul is in Corinth because of the emperor Claudius who expelled the Jews from Rome in AD 49. Does anybody know why Claudius did this? Well, the Roman historian Suetonius, who's uh, writing at this time, Uh, writes this. He says, because of the constant infighting among the Jews over one called Christus, Christ. (laughs) They're fighting. They're fighting over Christ. Now, if here's something to think about, Paul or any of the apostles haven't even been to Rome yet. And yet news about Christ has already uh, gotten to Rome to the extent where Jews are fighting over who Christ is to the point where the emperor says, first of all, he says, no more attending synagogues, but it keeps going on. So then it's just out, out, out now. Now, how did this happen? How did all of a sudden the gospel spread to a place like Rome? Well, the simple answer is the synagogue. Because in these, these synagogues, these pockets of, of God's people exist uh, in all the major cities of the Roman Empire. And here's what you need to know. I mean, God established this in such a wonderful way. Uh, every year, people from these pockets, whether they're Jews or God-fearing Greeks, what are they doing every year? They're going to Jerusalem. Why are they going to Jerusalem? To celebrate the feast, Passover, Pentecost. Um, So just imagine this. One year, uh, some from the pocket of, of, of God's people that you belong to, they go up for Passover. They come back and are like, wow, you should have seen how crazy it got this year. There was this man named Jesus. He was doing all these incredible things. His teaching was so powerful. In fact, he even claimed to be God. And then the next year, another pocket of people come back uh, from their, their, their visit to Passover. And if you think it was crazy last year, you should have seen what happened this year. Not only was Jesus doing all these amazing things, but we woke up one morning and Rome put him on a cross. And rumor has it, he rose from the dead three days later. And then two months after that, another group of people from your pocket make their way to to, to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And it's like, holy cow, if you think this was crazy, 
you should have seen what happened this feast. It was like Mount Sinai all over again. And just like our rabbis taught us, like when, when, when God's law came to us, it was spoken by God in, in, in the 70 tongues uh, so all the nations of the world could understand it. And it's like fire and wind came down and, and Jesus' disciples were speaking in tongues so we could hear it in our language. This is how the gospel's going forth. And this is why uh, you, you have these weird texts like we just read today uh, where, where one pocket of people may have this piece, but they lack another piece. And this pocket of people over here uh, may have another piece, but, but still lack another piece. It's crazy. I mean, this is why Apollos, a Jew from Alexandria, um, has pieces about John the Baptist, but lacks some important pieces about Jesus. And this is why when Paul gets to Ephesus, he finds some Jews who actually believe in Jesus, but they haven't still heard, they haven't heard about Pentecost yet. So how does Paul handle this situation? It's actually not Paul, it's God through Paul. He brings a whole repeat of Pentecost to the church in Ephesus. Look at 19 verse 6. Boom, it's Pentecost, isn't it? The hands are laid on them. They're, they're speaking in tongues. They're prophesying. So much division, by the way, over speaking in tongues today in, in God's church and prophesying. Can I just bring some clarity? If you have a Bible even like mine, you have a footnote at the bottom of, your, of, your, uh, at the, bottom of the page, and you'll see that the tongues there is actually the word for languages. They're speaking other languages. Um, and, and prophesying is, is just the verb form of prophet, and prophets are simply people who declare the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Um, and so what you have here now is Pentecost is happening in this multicultural metropolis like, like uh, Ephesus. And think about this. God's word now is going out in every language. Because the gospel is about welcoming every culture, every tribe, every family into God's family. And think about how honoring this is. That God is saying, you don't have to give up your language, you don't have to give up your culture to belong to me. And then I find it to be so interesting how, how something that should just that was intended to bring us together and unify us is today now one of the most divisive things in the whole church. In fact, last week we looked at Paul uh, hitting such a low, so low that, that Jesus literally had to show up in a dramatic way and encourage him. And the reason why I think Paul is so low is because of the stuff we're talking about right now. It's this division that's going on in the synagogue over Christ. Because I think in every synagogue, you have Jews like Paul and Priscilla and Aquila who believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then you have uh, Jews like Saul before he was Paul who are doing everything they can to rid this belief out of their midst. 
And then when you think about this reality in light of even Jesus' last prayer before he died, where Jesus prayed, God, may all who come into our family, God, would they be one as we are one. And if you want to know how important it is that we as God's family, from all of our diverse backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures, that we are one, Jesus, he, he says it. He says, he says, so that the world will know that Jesus is the Christ. They're going to know that when they see how, how we are united and one as a family. Just imagine the excitement of Paul when he gets to Corinth and he probably makes his way to the, the uh, Agora and uh, he, he starts setting up shop and all of a sudden he runs into uh, not just Jews, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, but Jews who actually believe in Christ and Jews who believe in Christ who are all the way from Rome. And Paul, for 18 months, is going to join their workshop in making tents. And when you look at the archaeology of big cities like Corinth, you realize that the shop and the home were one building. And these... And I'll show you what they look like. Um, that's probably uh, a, a good example of Priscilla and Aquila's house. And you, you, you can see how big it is, and you can see that, that, that there are living quarters for, for a lot of people. And if you look closely, you can see by the road where the, where the house comes this way, um, there, are, there are openings, and, and that's where the... the you have the house and then the shop. And, and, and really, this is getting us into just how Roman society functioned in terms of how people did life together, how they functioned together. Um, and we can't study Paul and his world and not look at this. And I'm going to just give you some facts about Paul's world right now, uh, namely uh, um, just how, how it was broken down socially. 30% of Paul's world is a slave. Some even credible scholars will say it's 40%. The rest of the population is either patrician or plebeian. Plebeians are, are, are the commoners. They're, they're just trying to eke out this existence through their craft, through their hard labor, through their service. Um, they're basically the hirelings. They make up 40 to 50% of the empire. That leaves 10% or maybe less uh, of, of this upper class of people called patricians. Patricians are the aristocrats. They're the lords. They're the landowners. They're the homeowners. Now, here's what you need to know. Everyone in Rome knew their status. Everyone had a number, and they knew their number. If you were a slave, you were one, maybe a two. If you were a hireling, you were anywhere from a three to a five. If you were a patrician, you were anywhere from a seven to a ten. 
And what I want us to see is, is how the, the, the people of all these different uh, rank and file, how they related to each other. Because most societies are broken down according to class, kind of like um, a, a three-layered sandwich. You have uh, the poor and the lower class on the bottom, you have the middle class uh, in the middle, and you have the upper class uh, at the top, and, and really there's very little association then between the classes. The upper class does life over here, the middle class uh, does life over here, and, and, and the lower and poor class does life over here. That's not how Roman society worked. Uh, the Roman society was, was broken down into what scholars call uh, patronage or patron-client system. So don't think sandwich. Start thinking pyramid. Where you have all these, these, these pyramids, where, where all of Rome is, is broken down into these, these clusters that are pyramids, where you have a patron at the very top, and then all the, the, the social tiers and classes underneath that patron belonging to that patron. And the patron basically was a godfather. He's a power broker. He provided uh, you your, your, your place in this world. He provided you food and shelter. He, he provided you even your forms of entertainment, what you did on Friday night. And, and you start asking, so what did the patron get out of this? If he's just the, 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 the sugar daddy. Well, he got tons of prestige. He got leverage. Uh, he got all the favors that he wanted from the people that were under him. He had this huge family of people that, that belonged to him to do whatever he wanted them to essentially do. And this brought status, it brought influence, um, it, it, it brought that kind of uh, situation to a, to a patron. Let me tell you what this meant. This meant all of relationships that were done in Rome are based on power. All based on power. I mean, take, take even the household meal, which is probably the main event of every day. Each person ate, or ate according to their rank, and it started with where they sat. The higher you were uh, in rank, the closer you got to sit to the patron. The, the, the lower you were in rank, um, you probably wouldn't even be in the same room as the patron, but down the hall and, and in another room. And if you were a slave, um, you probably weren't even invited to the meal. And you, you even the food that you got to eat uh, all depended on, on your rank. I mean, the best wines, the choicest meats were, were all for the higher in rank. The, the lower rank might get McDonald's or Wendy's, and, and the slaves would just get the leftovers. Again, it's, it, it's, it's relationship that's done that's based on power. And, and this is just the meal. You, you, you take those, those special occasions like St. Patty's Day. And, and, and then the patron probably uh, throws a big feast uh, for, for, for his whole household, and the night starts off kind of PG, but then the wives kind of leave and, and, and go to bed, and the heavy drinking starts, the dancers are brought in, a little bit later the prostitutes are brought in, and it probably ends with something kind of orgy-like. It's Rome. And you got to participate 
in that to the degree of your rank. And this system permeated the whole Roman world. It's, it's, it's the bedrock of how the whole um, empire is, is ordered socially, relationally, politically, economically. Everything is based on power. And the one patron who is over the whole thing is Caesar himself. He's the great godfather. Now, when you read your New Testament closely, you will see that some of these patrons come to Christ. In fact, anytime you see the word household in the New Testament, don't think parents of a few kids. You need to think patron, someone who's over this huge group of family from all walks of life who are living in this solidarity with one another where everything is based on power. Everything is based on status. So you have Lydia, the seller of purple in Philippi. She's a patron. And it says she and her whole household came to Christ. Cornelius, same thing in Acts 10, uh, says Cornelius and his whole household came to Christ. He's a patron. When you read the end of Paul's letters, those places where he says, send my greetings to this person, and this person sends their greetings to you. We, we skip that, but if you read that carefully, there are several patrons that are listed. It doesn't mean all these patrons are bad. But Corinth had an unusual amount of patrons who come to Christ. You have Chloe, you have Crispus, you have Stephanus, you have Gaius, you have Erastus. Priscilla and Aquila are probably of this patron status. Because when you read uh, Paul's letter to the Romans that he writes from Corinth, uh, Romans 16, 3 to 5, he says, send my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, who are now back in Rome, uh, and, and to all the Christians who meet in their house. Do you see what Paul's doing? Paul is going into every Roman city. And we say he's planting churches, and we think church building. No, he's planting households. He's establishing these alternative households that are radically countercultural to the household system in Rome. Where Rome is, is, is putting a rank and a price tag on everyone, where all their relationships are done according to rank, um, according to your, to your value, um, creating all this competition, all this inequality. Listen to Paul. Some of the things that he writes. Ephesians 2 verse 19, to that church, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Look, stop playing by Rome's rules. You belong to God's house, household. You have one patron, that's Christ. 
Listen to what else he says uh, to to, um, the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. You are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. You are all given the same spirit, which makes you the same. He says it to the church in Colossae, Colossians uh, 3, verse 11. Here in, in, in God's household, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, because Christ is all and is in all. Romans 10, uh, verse 12, he's addressing the Roman church. uh, For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call upon him. Galatians 3, he's, he's writing this to every church. He says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ. telling you something. The 21st century is more like the first century than any century since. We live in Rome. Is Rome defining how we do household in God's household? Listen to Jesus on this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them and said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter my kingdom. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in my kingdom, and whoever welcomes the least in my name is welcoming me. If you want to know why, why, why the church in Corinth becomes such a mess, because you, all you have to do is read Paul's letters. This church is a mess. Factions, divisions, sex with prostitutes, lawsuits amongst each other, eating meat offered to idols, idols spiritual competition with, with the speaking in tongues and prophecy, inequality at their household feasts. And if you want to know what's underneath all this mess is Rome has entered the church. They're doing household the Roman way. And the first thing that Paul confronts in the letter and he hits it hard is how dare you act this way? And I love what he writes right in the first chapter. Brothers and sisters, in fact, just think about that address. Your family. And then he says, think of what you were were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble uh, by birth. (laughs) Not many of you, but some of you were all those things. But he says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And then he says, look at your patron Christ. Look at how he does power. He does it through a cross. 
where the greatest became the least, where the mightiest became the weakest. And then Paul, in that letter, has the guts to say, and I wonder if you and I have the guts to say this, he says to the Corinthian church, and look at me. He says, look at how I have become weak. Look at how I have become small. Look at, look, look at how foolish I have become. Look at how I have become nothing. Can you say that today? Look at me. Look how weak I am. And then Paul kind of ends it with, and follow me as I follow Christ. What system do we live by? What does your household look like? Your circle of influence. The people that you do life with. Do you view people according to the value system of our world? Do you treat people according to rank or gender or race or culture? Our households cannot look like Rome because if they do, we will never change the world. And if you want to know how God's kingdom, which is power, which is bringing things back to life, how it's unleashed through us, how heaven can actually come to earth through us. It's when we look like the household of God, starting with Jesus. And if you want to know where you get the power, where we get the power to actually live this way, we have to see, first of all, how weak we really are. And then we need to see how, how, how weak Christ came, came and, and was for us. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, uh, Paul says, uh, the one with all the riches became poor uh, so that in our poverty we could become rich. And see, when, when, when we see uh, God in Christ becoming poor for us so that we could have the riches of God, when we see how, how God in Christ gave up his glory so his glory could be lavished on us, when we see how God in Christ gave up his beauty so that you and I could be made beautiful, when we see how God in Christ was hated so that you and I could be loved, when you and I see how God in Christ was forsaken so we could be brought in into God's family as sons and daughters. This is the power that needs to come into our life so that we then can be Christ to our world through this household to change the Roman world we live in. <clears throat> Can't blow this. We gotta get this one right. Let's bow our heads. God, forgive us of all the ways that we, your family, have betrayed you, your heart your love, 
and have become like the world we live in. Forgive us. And God, would you fill this church with your Holy Spirit, a spirit of of oneness so that we could be one in deep family relationship as you are a family and one Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're desperate for this, God. We have such an opportunity. And may there be much repentance in this place, even in these moments right now. In your name we pray. Amen.